so good to be in the house today. My name is Pastor Keith. I'm the executive pastor here. Pastor Zach is not with us, but kind of with us. You may have seen him sneaking around. He was supposed to be in Nicaragua today, but a hurricane decided to come through, and he had to reschedule that trip. And so he's not supposed to be here, but sometimes as a lead pastor, you just can't help yourself by coming to church. So if you see him, you don't see him. He's not really here. But I'm here. I'm preaching the word. It's good to be in the house this morning. Good to see everyone here. Hey, if you realized or if you were here last week, you knew that we were in a kickball tournament as a church. And uh, we, uh, we came, we represented. There were a bunch of you that were in the kickball tournament with the church and on other teams. And so guess what? We represented the Multiply Church well last week. You know why? Well, first, our church, we came in second place. 16 teams, we came in second place. I know it doesn't say a lot, but the first place team was Corey LaJoy's team, which he put on the tournament. And so the umpires in the last championship game, of course, wanted Corey's team to win. So we'll just blame it on that, right? No, but guess what? We were a church that were part of our community. We're not just a church that stands on the hill that is just a model church that you look at. No, we're a church that involves ourselves in the community. And guess what? We have a testimony to share with other people. And our team was there. We shared the testimony. And people found out about the Multiply Church Lake Norman because we were in competition with them when we were sharing the gospel. Amen? That's what it's all about right there. In, if you were on a kickball team that was not on the Multiply team, guess what? Your testimony was still shared because you're part of our family too. So you know who you are if you're in the kickball tournament and weren't on the Multiply church team. We won't say anything more other than that. Amen? Amen. Good stuff. We also have a birthdays to celebrate today. We celebrate birthdays in this church. And I'm going to call my beautiful wife up here, Malia. Malia, my best friend, we've been married for 12 years. Funny story, Malia prayed to God that her husband would be older than her. And guess what? If you were here last week, you saw that my birthday was last week. We are exactly one week apart. I am one week older than her. God answered her prayers by bringing me into her life. I love you. Appreciate you. Thanks, lovey. She's my best friend in my world, and I can't do life without her. And uh, we wouldn't be here without her constant encouragement and constant love for our children. And uh, let me just tell you, you're blessed because she's here. Let me just say that, okay? You're blessed because she is here. So we're going to jump into Revelations chapter 3 today. We're going to continue our series on Revelation. Um, Pastor Zach preached last week in Revelation 2. We're going over the different churches in Revelation. And today our church that we're looking at is a church of Sardis. And so it's titled The Church of Sardis and the Dead Church. How many know that looks can be deceiving? Have you ever been fooled by looking at something and being deceived by it? I used to run a lot of Spartan races. Do you know what a Spartan race is? A Spartan race is essentially a either half marathon or marathon with a whole bunch of obstacles in place of just running normally. And so they decided Running's not enough, let's add more misery. So we're gonna put obstacles in your place that so you have to run through those obstacles. And so when I lived in New York and as a youth pastor, I used to run a lot of Spartan races. I've, I've run over 25 Spartan races and that's because one of the parents that I was a youth pastor to was an incredible athlete. He was actually ranked in the world in these Spartan races. And so he connected me with them and we started running together and training for them. And we would run like 40 to 50 miles a week just to prepare for these different Spartan races. 
And so how many know that there's a different body type between a sprinter and a long distance runner? Sprinters are like chiseled, they're jacked. They, you can like, they have the eight pack abs. Like they, they look like the athletes. And sometimes long distance runners don't always look like the prime athlete, okay? Some of them are pretty lengthy, they're tall, they have thin legs, some of them even have a gut and kind of no upper body. If you're a long distance runner, I'm not describing you right now, I'm describing other people right now. But sometimes long distance runners just don't look like they are super athletic. So I pull up to this race, it was, it's called The Beast, it was 16 miles, it was in Vermont at the Killington Ski Resort. So if you know anything about Vermont and the ski resorts there, elevation gain is like a couple miles. And so you're, you're not just running this flat course, you're going up the ski resort, these, these slopes, up and down these slopes. And so I come to this race, I'm getting ready, and this guy walks up next to me, and he's like tall, he looks like he's got a beer gut, and he's not even wearing trail running shoes, he's wearing like combat boots. And I'm like, this guy does not know what he's doing. This guy, this guy just came to this race. He probably rolled off his couch and like, I'm going to go run this Spartan race. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complete it. I'm going to do And I, I look at this guy and I'm like, no shot, bro. There's no, there's like, you are, you are going to be crawling across that finish line if you make it. Like, there's no way his body type looked like he was going to survive this race. And this race is like six hours plus. And so I kid you not. I judged him at the starting line three hours into this race as I'm going up this mountain, just barely surviving. This guy just strolls on by me, like just like nothing, just strolls on by me, walking up this mountain, doing these obstacles, and he beat me fair and square, legitimately kicked my butt, and he did not look like an athlete. He did not look like he would survive the race. Pulls up in combat boots and beats me looks can be deceiving. We're going to relate that to the church of Sardis this morning. The look of Sardis, this church, looks like on the outside it was prosperous. But Jesus calls it a dead church. You can look like a prosperous church, but if you're full of dead people, you are a dead church. So Revelations chapter 3, verse 1, it reads, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." What constitutes as a dead church that needs reviving? First, there is no indication that the church of Sardis was being persecuted from outside forces. There are other churches in Revelations that we read about that they were actively being persecuted against. There's no evidence that this was happening with Sardis. There's also no evidence that there was any heresy within the church of Sardis, which means there was no people trying to destroy the church from within. There was no drama that is evident 
from within that was destroying the church, like we see in the other churches in Revelation. So things seem to be going perfectly fine, perfectly peaceful, perfectly religiously correct. Perhaps it was a church that was too good to be true. Perhaps it was a religious proper appearance that only meant that it was silently compromising the truth in the pagan society around it. Theologian G.B. Card says the church of Sardis was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. The perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. This might explain why it was calm and sedated on the outside in its appearance, but yet spiritually dead on the inside. I'm going to go over what inoffensive Christianity means, but just for for your information, inoffensive Christianity does not mean that we as Christians are going out and looking for a battle to offend people. You're going to be offensive in the way that you live your lifestyle, because if you're a Christ follower, then that's going to offend some people in some ways. It's not proactively looking for a fight. So all of you social media warrior, keyboard warriors, I'm not telling you to go on Facebook and start posting offensive things to make people try to argue. That's not what I'm saying. Inoffensive Christianity means that you are not practicing what you preach. That means you come to church, through these four walls, you raise your hands, you worship, and then you walk out of church forgetting everything that you just did. Inoffensive Christianity is having no conviction outside of church. It's a fake Christianity. It's empty. It's hollow. It is two-faced. It's hypocritical. You are what you say a hypocritical Christian. You wear the cross on your chest, but you walk out of church and you don't act like it. That's the model in offensive Christianity. George Eldon led to find the church of Sardis as a picture of nominal Christianity, outwardly prosperous, busy with the external religious activity, but devoid of spiritual life and power. God protect us from growing in numbers, but not being spiritually alive. Amen, church? We want to grow in numbers because we want to impact people, but I don't want these chairs full of empty Christians. I don't want these chairs full of people who say they're Christians, but lack the power and the spirit of God. God, help this church not be a church that grows in quantity, but lacks the power of Jesus. Amen? Spiritually dead is what Jesus is calling out Sardis for right now. What a disaster. A church that functions outwardly prosperous, but has no conviction. Paul describes such Christians by saying they, they seemed quite religious, but denied God's power in their lives in 2 Timothy 3.5. The community of living dead needed the power of God to bring them back to life. That's the good news, amen. We serve a resurrected Jesus, which means he came back to life. And so if you're spiritually dead in this church this morning, guess what? There's hope for you because your spiritual life can be resurrected again, amen, church? There's nothing that God can't turn around in your life. In verse 3, it says, or in verse 2, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's his first commandment. In this verse, wake up. In other words, Christ is telling the church to perform a self-diagnostic examination. Can I tell you something? Examining your own heart takes a lot of work. Admitting that you are wrong takes a lot of work. As a husband, as a father, admitting that I'm wrong takes humility in front of my family. Even more so, how many know that you are sinful in your nature? I didn't have to teach my children how to sin but they do. I didn't have to teach my son not to do something, yet he so naturally does it. It's just within his nature. 
I have to correct him so he doesn't do it again, and yet after I correct him, he probably still does something wrong. That's the sinful nature. You don't have to learn how to sin. You are sinful in just your being. And because we are sinful in just being, we have to know we have to have humility within our heart to say, okay, God, no matter what state I'm in, I need you. I need to self-diagnose my sin, my problems, my heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand your heart and your life? Who can understand that it's desperately sick and desperately wicked? Those thoughts that go through your head, yes, those are wicked thoughts. But guess what? Take captive those thoughts, give it to Christ, and let his perspective filter your actions. Amen, church? Lamentation 340 says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. You see, the returning to the Lord, that's a habit of a daily surrender to God. Going to Jesus is not just a once a week thing, once a month thing, not a church activity. Going to Jesus is a habit because let me tell you, I need Jesus every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't need Jesus in my life, that I don't need the Holy Spirit in my life, that I don't need his perfection in my life because I am not perfect. You are not perfect. We are spiritually weak without the power of the Holy Spirit. What if the church of Sardis became spiritually dead because they did not want to put in the work to understand they needed to be spiritually alive? They didn't want to put in the work of the self-examination that takes a lot of effort and humility. It takes an action of examining your faith. Do I believe in Jesus and do I apply Jesus and his word to my life every day or do I just examine my faith once a week, once a month, two times a year when I go to church on Christmas and Easter? Do I just examine my faith once in a while or am I examining my faith on a daily basis? Because let me tell you, you sin on a daily basis. You just do. You have a sinful nature. It's not something that just escapes you. It's something that's actively in your life. And so when you have a sinful nature that's actively in your life, you have to actively examine your faith and how you handle those sins in your life and put them and give them to God. You also have to examine your works. Galatians 6.3, but let each one examine his own work. We need to ensure that whether our works, our deeds, or our actions are in agreement with our faith. Does your faith reflect Jesus every day? Do you have a multiply Lake Norman sticker on your bumper? Go on the highway, cut people off, and flick them off? Does your faith reflect the church that you go to or your actions? Do you wear a gold cross on your chest and then go to the grocery store and treat people wrong and mean and cut people off? Do you go to the restaurants, pray for your meal, after you pray for your meal, treat the waitress with disrespect and tip them poorly? Does your faith reflect your actions and your words? Or are you just an empty, spiritually dead Christian who says, yes, I'm a Christian because I want to go to heaven? Examine your works. Reflect Jesus in your life. Don't just do religious things because they're religious. Do them for the love of Christ in your life. Examine yourself through the perspective of God. Psalms 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. That takes work. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. We need to remember that we can't properly examine ourselves without the help of God. I have many opinions. I know many of you have your own opinions too. 
What if we base our faith off of our own opinion without Scripture and the help of God? That would mean that I am basing everything that I do is just perfectly fine. I would label myself an A-class, a perfect person that has great faith if I base it off my own opinion. If you base all of your decisions, your self-diagnostic exam, off of your own opinion, then you're going to give yourself a better grade than you deserve. Understand that. Because your opinion of yourself is going to be better than what it is. You see, we have to examine ourselves through the perspective of God. Jesus is already saying to us, you have a sinful nature. You need to humble yourself before me. So we have to understand that anything that we have reflects God in our heart must come from Scripture and must come from God. We have to have convictions from God, not from other people, not from ourselves. The Bible is like a mirror. You don't look in the mirror just to examine how it looks like and how beautiful the mirror is. You look at the mirror to examine your appearance and to correct what needs to be changed. Just like that, we don't look at a Bible and praise how pretty, how beautiful the contents of the Bible is. We have to read the Bible, identify our faults, and do the best we can to change our faults in our own lives. This is not a happy message. I'm looking at all your faces right now. You're like, oh, this is terrible. I have to put in the work. I have to admit that I am wrong. I have to admit that I have faults. I have to admit that I'm a sinful person. I have to admit that I'm not good enough. Guess what, church? We will not become a spiritually dead church. Pastor Zach, myself, all of our staff, we will not allow us to be spiritually dead. Yes, we want to grow in numbers because we want to impact our community for Jesus. We don't want to grow our numbers with ineffective, empty, hypocritical, dead Christians. Those are... Those are just seats that are being filled with a warm body that has nothing breathing for Jesus. We don't want you if you're spiritually dead. We want you to come learn about Jesus, reflect that in your nature, and praise Jesus for who he is. We will not be spiritually dead. The next command comes in verse 3. And he added that it must be remembered what it had received and heard. We have to remember the gospel. With the second command, Christ insists that the dead church, church would remember what it had heard. This means returning to the basic teaching of the gospel. This means having sound doctrine, having a solid belief system. Because I can tell you one thing. You can determine what you want to believe. Type into Google what churches believe what you want to believe and find a church to go to that believes what you want to believe. There are too many churches, too many pastors who base what they want to believe off of culture and not what Scripture says. There are too many ways to read the Scripture, manipulate it to what you want it to say to match your belief system. That is backwards. That is false doctrine. That is bad doctrine. We have to be a church that reads the Scripture and practice what it preaches, not what we want it to preach. Amen? Sound doctrine, going back to the Word, understanding the gospel at the very foundation it's because Jesus died on the cross for my sin because I am wicked. He is perfect. He sacrificed himself for me, defeated death, rose again so I could have eternal life with him. That's what's given me spiritual life. Amen. Sound doctrine of what scripture says is a solid belief system. God help us if we become a church that changes our doctrine based on our culture. 
Jesus is calling out the church of Sardis for being inoffensive because their sound doctrine is changing based on their circumstances. We will not change what we preach based on the circumstances, but based on the judgment of God. We will be judged by God for what he wrote in his word and how we applied it to our lives. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. God help those who go, who die, face Jesus face to face, who think they're going to heaven because they went to church. God help those who think that they go to church, they bring their children to the church, they take communion, they were water baptized. God help those who think they're doing religious activities that that's their ticket to heaven. Let me tell you something. You don't go to heaven because of religious activities. You go to heaven because of your relationship with Jesus. You go to heaven because your relationship with Jesus is active. It's not a relationship on a Sunday morning. It's a relationship every single day. You wake up every single day. You say, God, I need you in my life because I can't do it without you. It's not I come to church once a week, once a month. I'm going to heaven. Religious activity does not give you access to Jesus in heaven. Your relationship does. You see... Those who do religious activities give themselves a false sense of security that because they go to church, they're tight with God. No, 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 no. You're tight with God because you have an active relationship with him. You see, when we understand I'm accepted, therefore I obey, now because of the love of Jesus in my life, that is why I go to church and surround myself with believers. That is why I apply Jesus into my life and everyday action of work when I go and I encounter people who have bad attitudes, I reflect the attitude of joy in my life because Jesus is in my life, not because I'm religious, not because I wear a cross, not because there's a sticker on my car that says multiply church. I do religious things for the love of Jesus who has already accepted me at an infinite cost of his life. We are not a religious church. We are a church who loves Jesus first and honors and respects him with the habits of church community. When I have that knowledge, I feel free. I feel free knowing that I'm accepted by Jesus because of his death on the cross. I feel free that I don't have to live by a set of rules and standards that gives me access to him. I don't have to be good enough to get access to Jesus. That's a freeing thought. You are not good enough on your own. You don't have to be good enough on your own. Jesus was good enough for you. So when you approach church as an I have to be good enough to go to church to have access to God, you are wrong. You already have access to God because Jesus came before you and for you. There's no religious activity that's going to get you to heaven. It's your relationship and the freedom knowing that what has already was done is enough for you. A perfect example of religious activity comes in scripture in Matthew 23, 27, when Jesus talks about the Pharisees in the New Testament. In verse 27, it says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly appeared beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In many ways, the Pharisees in the New Testament were the worst people in the world. They were cold, they were legalistic, but at the same time, their hearts were trying to be close to God. They were holy men who kept the law. They pursued purity with passion and wanted nothing more 
than to live a life that pleased God. They were sincere, they were religious, but they were misguided. In the Gospels, the Pharisees are often presented as hypocritical and proud opponents of Jesus. And Jesus states they do not practice what they preach. You see, the religion got in their minds and they worshiped religion before they worshiped God. We can set in our practices that we worship religious activity before we, we worship God. You can come to church, enjoy the songs that we are singing, sing the words that are completely empty without actually worshiping God. God forbid we come to church, raise our hands without understanding who we're raising our hands to. It's understanding our heart condition. It's not about what we are saying. It's about how we're saying it to God. It's an act of worship to God. Jesus pointed out to them, however conscientious they were in following the finer points of Judaism, that they failed to measure up to God's standard of holiness. In 23, he says, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You can be religious and forget the mercy of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say that there's a lot of churches that are very strict on their religious activity, but forget the justice, the mercy, the faithfulness of the law. We serve a God who judges, but we serve a merciful, gracious God. You can't get one without the other. We talked about it in Revelations. Pastor Zach even presented that in every message he is, he's preached in Revelations. That, yes, Revelations has a lot of judgment in it, a lot of scary things, a lot of things that makes us confused. But at the very center of it is Jesus, is our hero. Jesus, his mercy and his grace. Jesus comes to save us. Jesus is our savior. The church of Sardis was spiritually dead because they only were religious, and they were spiritually and doctrinally weak. The third and last command that is in this verse, it says, hold fast to the things and repent. The church had to live according to the grace that it professed. The third command directed the church to develop and maintain a spirit of loyalty, which required them to humble themselves before God and to turn from their evil ways. Remember what they were taught and repent. I don't know about you, but repentance in my life looks like a daily thing. It's a daily, Jesus, forgive me of where I fall, have fallen short. Forgive me where I've said this, I've thought this. Forgive me for this. Right, we believe that repentance, yes, when you repent, when you give your life to Christ for the very first time, when you say, yes, Jesus, I am a sinful person and I admit that I am a sinner, we believe your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you are a Christian. You are part of the family of God, that you will have eternal security, yes. But there's also an, act, an active daily action of repentance in your own lives. It's a repentance of understanding that you're not perfect and understanding you need Jesus. It's an act of humility on a day-to-day -day basis. We have to have the knowledge, the action, the conviction to repent on a day-to-day -day basis and say, Jesus, I am a sinner I admit that I'm a sinner and I need life with you and not on my own because I am not good enough. I am not good enough. You are not good enough. No matter how perfect you want to be, you will never be good enough. And that should be a relief. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. None of you have to be perfect. None of you have to be perfect to receive Jesus in your life. 
Jesus is perfect, and he fills in your imperfections. Amen? Jesus makes you complete. You see, Paul says uh, he is weak, and he boasts in his weakness because he understands that through his weakness, he finds strength in Jesus. Jesus fills in your weaknesses. That is an empowering statement, knowing that you don't have to be good enough. Jesus is good enough on your behalf. We have to live out the gospel in a bold and courageous way. Again, Sardis, the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity does not mean to be offensive. It means standing on convictions of the gospel. I want you to reflect the love of Christ in your day-to-day actions. And by loving other people, radically loving other people, you're going to offend them. You're going to offend them because there's power in the name of Jesus. Why do you think people curse by saying Jesus? They curse when they say Jesus out loud, when they say his name in vain, because that name has power. That name means something. That name is powerful. So when you live according to his word, when you say, yes, Jesus, you are my savior, I am a Christian, you are going to, you are going to offend people because of your convictions. And that's okay. Because we have to be a church that stands firm on our beliefs and understanding that Jesus came and died for our sins. And I'm not going to back down from that. And if you're offended because I love Jesus, then you're going to have to deal with my life and my lifestyle. That is one of the greatest freedoms we have in this country. We don't have to just worship Jesus inside the church. You don't have to go to a place to worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus actively every day through your lifestyle, through your actions. Jesus told us to love our enemies because he expects you to have enemies. Think about that. Love your enemies because he expects you, standing for your convictions, to have enemies in your life. Jesus naturally had enemies. He never sinned and still had enemies. How does that happen? Well, live life according to his word and you'll see how that happens. You'll see how you naturally create enemies who disagree with you because at one point, your convictions will go contrary to culture, society norms, and people will question, what are you thinking? And all you have to say, and not in a bashful way, not in an offensive way, not calling people out for their sins, all you have to say is, my conviction in Jesus is my standard of life. You don't have to be offensive in their face. You don't have to call people out. You know, I just, I moved from New York, and in New York, whenever we walked in New York City, I'd always see these people on the side with their speakers preaching to other people as they walk by. And when I say preaching, they're saying, repent or you're going to go to hell, screaming in their faces, repent or you're going to hell. Do you think that's effective? Your most effectiveness of showing people Jesus are the people that you're closest to, the people that you see every day. People will understand you're different when they see you going through a tough time, a trial, when they see coworkers treating you badly or clients treating you badly or bosses treating you badly. And when you go through those circumstances and yet you still have your testimony in place, they'll notice you. They'll notice there's something different about, they'll notice that there's fruit in your life. Fruit is a Christianese statement. Fruit means they'll notice that Jesus is reflected in your lifestyle. How you act in times that are tested is your greatest testimony that could ever be. People are watching you. Just like your kids are watching you, other people are watching your actions and judging you. Act like Jesus and you can be blameless. Amen? I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. There's a parable in Matthew 21 that I want to teach you this morning. 
because it relates to the church of Sardis and it relates to us in a very, very powerful way. It's the fig tree analogy. So in Matthew 21, verse 18, Jesus curses a fig tree. And it says, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately that tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. A little bit of context around this parable. So this fig tree, we know that Jesus is traveling during the winter time right now. So if you know anything about agriculture, you know that most fruit is not grown during the winter time. You don't expect your flowers to bloom in the months of January, February, right? You don't expect to go apple picking during the colder months of the winter. And so just like you wouldn't expect to walk by a tree to have fruit on it. But the, the interesting thing about the fig trees is that fig trees, yes, during harvest time, they produce a lot of fruit. But fig trees produce fruit all year round. There is always fruit on a fig tree, even during the winter times. Maybe there's not a, as much during the winter times than there are during the harvest times, but there's always fruit on a fig tree. So fig trees are not like other trees that only produce seasonally. Rather, fig trees, all seasons of its life, has fruit. So the tree that Jesus cursed was not a good tree because it was not producing fruit. It did not have fruit even though it was winter, and therefore it was not a good tree. So Christ's condemnation on the fig tree was completely just. Some people read this parable without knowing the context, and they will say, Jesus is irrational. Jesus lacks empathy. What did that fig tree ever do to Jesus? It's missing the point. Jesus is condemning this fig tree for not having fruit, even though it was in a tough season, it should still produce fruit, just like the church of Sardis, just like the church that we are in today. We might be growing. The church of Sardis might be looking beautiful on the outside, growing prosperous. But if we are not a church that produces fruit in every season of its life, then we are missing the point. If we are Christians who are not producing fruit, even as we walk through tough and terrible times, even if we're walking through a valley in our life right now, there still should be evidence of fruit in our lives because times of testing produces perseverance. And when we're persevering in our faith, we're still producing a testimony of fruit of Jesus that's active in our lives. We have to be a church that has fruit. A fruitless church is a church that's spiritually dead. Characteristics of a dead church is a church that have people in it that don't act like Jesus. If you're not acting like Jesus, if you're not trying and attempting to act like Jesus, if you're not reflecting his love in your day-to-day -day life, you're fruitless, you're dying, you might be dead. If you're a Christian that faces no persecution or offending anyone, it might be because you are changing your belief based on society's trends and culture. If you don't face any kind of persecution ever, it might be because you're too passive of your faith. We need to actively 
profess our faith, not in an offensive way, not an in-your-face way, in a calm, respectful, convicting of the Holy Spirit way, through your lifestyle, through your actions. If we're a church that only does religious activities with no power behind it, with no spiritual life behind it, we are a dying church. And I can promise you one thing, Pastor Zach will not lead a spiritually dead church. This ch church will not be spiritually dead because we are relying on the Holy Spirit. I will not allow this church to be spiritually dead because I will preach the word. Pastor Zach will preach the word of God. If you wanna to go to a spiritually dead church, Google a church that believes in whatever you want it to believe in and go into it. If you want a spiritually dead church, come to a church that reads the Bible and applies it, amen? That stands to our feet. You see in Revelations 4 or 3, chapter 4, he ends it with this. And he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed less in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. You see, the people in Sardis, maybe some of them were dead Christians, but there were still few alive Christians. We can take that as a church in this country that maybe we have a church, maybe we have churches in this country that are dead, but this church is alive because we are full of alive Christians who actively proclaim Jesus. And so as we step into worship right now, as we worship him just for a moment, I want you to worship it in a way that you're honoring God and say, God, I want to be spiritually loved. God, I want you and your spirit to reflect in my actions. God, I want to be, I don't want to be spiritually dead. If you're afraid of being spiritually dead, it's time to profess that and say, God, not me, not now. I will live according to your word. I will live according to your Holy Spirit in my life. Can we just take a moment and just worship him in a respectful, honoring way? Can we just lift our hands for a moment and say, God, I surrender to you. I give it to you. I want you. I need you, God, in my life.
say yes to you this morning. We say yes, we need you, God, this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask every eye closed, every head bowed just for a moment. If you're here this morning and you want to accept Jesus into your heart, if you're walking through life and you know that you can't do life alone, that you're not enough, if you're walking and you say, I, I know I need a relationship with Jesus, I know I need to turn my life around, I'm simply going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. We're going to acknowledge you, but we're not going to call you out. We won't embarrass you in any way. We just want to know that you accepted Jesus into your heart. Is there anyone here this morning that says yes to Jesus today? Hallelujah. 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 Yes, I see that hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask everyone to repeat this prayer after me. Father, I give you my heart. I admit that I am not enough. I admit that I am a sinner. But you died for me. You went to the cross for me. And you rose again three days later, giving me eternal life. And I praise and thank you for that. Help me to live wide awake to your love and fully alive to your purpose. Amen. 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 Can we give those hands that went up a celebration? Hey, God is so good to us. That's what it's all about. We have to be a church that preaches the gospel and teaches the gospel and reflects it in our lives. Amen. We can't just be an empty church. We have to be a church full of alive, spiritually alive people. So let's continue to love Jesus and change the world in how we act. Amen, church. God bless you. We will see you next week. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hey, thanks for joining us today at Multiply Church. We can't wait to see you again next week, either in person or online, as we continue to love Jesus and change the world.